It's my uh, privilege this morning to be able to uh, preach God's Word. And um, so if you would open with me to Luke 2. Um, The bulletin says 22 through 35. I'm going to read the next three verses as well uh, through verse 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was upright and de- er, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold this child, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling your people to come and worship you, to sing your praises, to hear your word, to fellowship with one another. And Father, we pray that in the preaching of your word today, Father, that, that your word would be clear. And Father, that we would hear of what it means to wait faithfully and with hope in the already and the not yet. As we, have, as we rejoice at this time for your first coming, and we await the second coming. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start with a verse from a song. Gather round, ye children, come. Listen to the old, old story of the power of death undone. By an infant born of glory, son of God, son of man. These words begin a Christmas concert performed by Andrew Peterson and friends called Behold the Lamb of God. 
My family and I have had the great privilege. Um, I was introduced to, introduced to it by Chrissy. Um, and we lo- we've loved listening to that um, in the years that we've been married, every year during Christmas. And we've enjoyed attending the concert when we've had the chance. And I find these words appropriate for the season of Advent. This season of preparation as we remember the coming of our Lord Jesus and as we await his coming again. Words that prepare our hearts to live both in the already and the not yet, the time we live in between his first coming and the time that will follow his second. In the midst of this time, it is always helpful to remember the story that we are in. The greater old, old story, the story that reminds us of our own forgetfulness and impatience, all the while reminding us of the need for faithfulness and hope. This has been the call of God's people from the very beginning, to live in faithfulness and hope, to live in the tension of the already and the not yet. Abraham was called to this, to go from a place that he knew, to go from the place where he had grown up, where all of his family was, to the land God would show him, to be a great father of a number so uncountable as the stars in the sky. But Abraham was old, and his wife was old. And the closest they would come to seeing this promise was one son born when they were older than anyone in this room. Abraham's hope was not built on seeing the multitudes through which the whole earth would be blessed. His hope was not in living long enough to see God's promise fully revealed. But rather, his hope was based in knowing that God's promises are true and that God was always faithful. Moses, likewise, was called to this. He was called to bring the people of God out of Egypt and into the promised land. But because of many things, including 40 unexpected years in the wilderness, Moses only got to glimpse that land from across the river before he died and was buried there. Moses' hope was not built on getting into and living in that land, the land flowing with milk and honey, but on the promise of a greater future for all the people of God a promise that he also would one day participate in. And so the promise of the great salvation is carried forth. We see it through David, through the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and into a time when the people of God were, yet again, under the foot, under the yoke of a great ruler across the sea, when the people had forgotten their original calling to be a blessing to all peoples of the earth. And so, as we've heard these last few weeks of Advent, God's messengers came and proclaimed the coming of that great salvation. Once again, proclaimed to Zechariah, to Mary, and to Joseph, and to the shepherds. And yet many still failed to see their king. Many still failed to remember what was promised. And this is our reality today. We forget who our one true king is. And we forget his promises. We fail to wait because we don't know what we're waiting for. 
And we want now what is still to come. But God has not forgotten, and so we are reminded of his great faithfulness at the coming of our true Savior. We can live in faithfulness today while we yet live with expectation and hope for tomorrow. And so here we are, the beginning of this passage, 40 days after the birth of Jesus. Let me set the scene a little bit for you. It's the Temple Mount, 36 acres, roughly 25 football fields in size, filled with buildings and plazas, filled with people. Smoke rising up from the center, from the sacrifices swirling around the tops of the temple. The sounds of bleeding lambs, of lowing cattle, of chirping birds. People praying, priests singing, and certainly lots of talking. This was the great work of the law. The great work of sacrifices, which shed the blood of the one for the sins and uncleanliness of the other. And faithfulness meant keeping that law, both in the actions that others could see, as well as in the, in the heart, which only God could see. This was the already of that time. This was the working out of what God had given them at that time. The faithful keeping of the law that God had given with the hope of the better salvation to come. And so... As the law commanded, Mary and Joseph came to the temple. They came up from Bethlehem for Mary to be purified after the birth of Jesus and to present their firstborn son before the Lord. They came, although they were of poor and little means, and they bore the acceptable sacrifice that the law allowed two small birds. At the temple also at this time, there was a man who was described as righteous and devout, a man who knew and kept the law. The sense is here that he was somebody that outwardly, people would have known, kept the law, and also that inwardly was faithful to God. He was a man who sought out God. And so Simeon was drawn to the, holy, to the temple by the Holy Spirit that day. Also, at the temple that day, faithfully worshiping the Lord through prayer and fasting day in and day out, despite her many, at least 84 years, the text tells us, was Anna, a prophetess, one who testifies the mighty acts of God. They had all come to the temple that day in response to what God had done. They were responding to his unending faithfulness to his people by knowing the uncleanness that they had and coming to have it cleansed, by coming to redeem the firstborn son that they had been given as the law commanded, by coming to worship rightly before him in sacrifice, prayer, and blessing, and fasting, by living daily in reliance upon him and his promises, and by proclaiming for all to hear the works that he had done. This is what God's people had been called to do with expectation and promise that they would become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And yet they failed daily at this, 
trying instead to insulate themselves from those around them, from both their oppressors and those they looked down upon, from the Romans and from the Samaritans. And the truth is that we do this as well. This last year has been one many of us would soon forget. Whether it is the pain and trauma that we have felt with um, situations in our personal lives, whether it's what we've seen on the news with the continuing assault of ISIS on the people of the Middle East and the senseless slaughter of our fellow Christians, or the slog of an election season that seemed like it would never, ever, ever end. Deep tensions have been revealed. Divisions have come up that we have held to in our nation, in our communities, in our families, and in our church. Rather than seeking what it means to be a blessing, rather than seeking what it means to be a people who shine God's light into the dark places, to invite those we disagree with to our dining tables, to repent of long-held personal and communal sins, we have settled into the comfort of our own fears. But faithfulness is different. Faithfulness calls us to something else. It doesn't mean that we all have to agree at all times. It doesn't mean that we have to be the same as one another. But rather, faithfulness is responding in love to God because of what he has done. And out of that, to also love our neighbor. Faithfulness means to come and worship the one true God, to gather and eat from his table, to pray and seek the good of our neighbor, to seek the peace of the Lord, and to hold as tightly as we can to his truth and the reality that he has come and dwelt among us and shattered all of our expectations. This is our already. This is the reality of knowing that our sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ, the Savior, has come. And this is the not yet, the tomorrow, the great promise that Simeon had been waiting on. This is what he had been promised In fact, it was the great promise that all of Israel had been waiting on. That all of the earth had been waiting in expectation for. Whether they realized it or not. And Simeon had the great privilege and calling to be a witness to this. To see it come about. There is no indication here that Simeon had been living a quiet life of contemplation, just waiting in silence for something to happen. But rather that this man lived a righteous and devout life. A life that would have been lived in service to the Lord. A life that would have attended to the true worship of the Lord. And a life that would have seen the outworking of faith that does not allow us to sit and watch things go by.
So what was Simeon's waiting? It was a waiting in hope. And not a hope that said, oh, I, I didn't study for my exams or prepare, prepare for this project for work, and so I hope it all pans out. But rather, it's a hope based on the real promises and the real actions of the one true God. The God who had shown himself over and over and over again to be faithful to everything that he had said. Simeon was waiting for the promise of the consolation of Israel. I tried to think of a way to define consolation. Comfort was the best that I could come up with. So instead of trying to define it myself, I'm going to turn to Isaiah 51. And we're going to read the first six verses. Listen to me, you who, are, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. And look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. You jump over to verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? of the Son of Man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretches out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God. This is the comfort that Israel waited for. This is the comfort that the people in many ways forgot was coming. They had come up with their own expectations of what a Messiah would look like, of what a Savior, of what a promised one would look like. They thought they had that 150 years before when they had reestablished their kingdom, only for the Romans to come in and take it back over. And so it is a reminder that it is the Lord alone who brings comfort. It is the Lord alone who brings comfort to his people, who restores her glory, her fruitfulness, 
who makes her whole again. No earthly king, no man or woman with strong hand and mighty arm, no president, no prime minister, no general, no one who commands the greatest armies on the earth can bring about the comfort of God's people. No one can bring about their great salvation or can bring about their ultimate redemption and restoration that would last forever and ever except for God alone. And so Simeon is drawn to the temple that day, that day when his already is dissolved into a new already, a new not yet, a new kingdom dawning, the revelation of the Lord's Christ, the anointed one who alone can bring about that salvation of God's people. He couldn't have known ahead of time what he was expecting when he arrived there. The Holy Spirit is the one who guided him to this small family and their helpless baby. J.I. Packer notes, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. And so Simeon is struck by the majesty of God, made incarnate, in this little baby that he held in his arms. It's funny, Judah is a year and a half old now, and I, I can't remember how small a, a 40-day-old baby is. But I know that it's, it's small. I know that it feels fragile. I know that there's still lots of crying and burping and late nights and feeding. And I, I just can't even imagine what it would look like to hold baby like that in my arms and think this is the salvation of the world. And so Simeon takes Jesus into his arms. Think about that. Think about what that looks like. If you've held a little baby and how fragile they are. This man who had been promised that he would see the great consolation of Israel held that consolation in his arms, held the one who would bring the comfort God's people had so long waited for, held the one who had created him and who had made this promise to him. Simeon held the creator of the heavens and the earth in his own arms. And Simeon blessed God because what else could he do? You can almost feel the astonishment, the joy, the tears which probably flowed as Simeon sings this song, and that's really what this is. It's a song, it's set out, it's poetry. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles? And for glory to your people Israel. God's good promises had been kept. Simeon was seeing the one who would bring about the salvation of the whole earth. The one who has come to be a light to reveal his kingdom to the Gentiles. 
and to bring the glory to establish his people, his kingdom amongst the people of Israel. God's intention to make his blessings flow, as the song says, as far as the curse is found, is being realized. God's promises to make Abraham a father to multitudes and a blessing to the nations is being accomplished. God's promise to bring his people ultimately to the true promised land is going to happen. This call on Simeon's life to be a witness to the coming of the Comforter and Savior has come to pass. And so Simeon knows that his job is complete. And his response to the Lord is that he can take him now. Because Simeon knows that he does not need to linger to see what happens, to see if God's promises are true. But rather, he's seeing God's promises, his true and good faithfulness, lying in his arms in a baby. And yet Simeon doesn't stop there. Mary and Joseph are amazed by what Simeon has said. But Simeon also has a prophecy about what is to come, what the presence of the Savior means. He speaks in the ri- of the rising and falling of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed, because he knows that although the king has come, although the king resides in the presence of his people, although this king would do mighty acts and would show beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is God incarnate, that people would still reject him. And so God will know in their hearts who has truly embraced his covenant, who has truly embraced his promises, and who denies their own need of his great salvation. And Simeon's words also are painful for Mary. This baby who she bore 40 days earlier. She is told, as he is to be the savior of mankind, he will be crucified as well. She will see this happen. So Simeon lived to see Christ, the rescuer, the redeemer, and he knew all too well that there were still many whose hearts were no more than stone and that would always be that way who would reject the incarnate God who dwelt in their presence because he was not who they expected and he was not who they even wanted. The message Simeon proclaimed was one of great joy, but joy tinged with the cost of accomplishing salvation of, the salvation of Israel and the nations. And Simeon proclaims that the salvation has come. And as if this is not enough, this proclamation of the new already and the new not yet is highlighted. It's like an exclamation point is put on it. This is the salvation. And up comes Anna, the 84-year-old prophetess, a woman known to testify the mighty acts of God, a woman who had shown great faithfulness in the temple day and night. And she came, and she gave thanks to God Because she realized that the long-awaited one had come and the redemption of Jerusalem was at hand. And so we can ask, 
how can we live in this already and in the taste of anticipation of the not yet? Jesus has come. He has dwelt among us. He has made known to all the peoples of the earth the great salvation of the Lord. And we can live and we can wait in faithfulness and hope. A hope based in reality. A hope based on the good and true promises of God. A hope based in that old, old story of God's salvation of his people by the death and resurrection of his son. We can live in faithfulness by proclaiming this story in our worship, in our hospitality to those who can give us nothing in return. We can live in hopeful expectation of the return of Jesus by not fearing to go outside of our comfort zones, by not fearing to say without loss that we can give all we have been given up to and including our lives for the work of his kingdom knowing that we will one day see the fulfillment of all of God's promises brightly before us at the second coming of our Lord. And we no longer need to be constrained by those things that would cause division among us, but rather we are freed to love and give more than we thought possible because of what God has given through his Son. So as I said, the concert starts with, Gather round, ye children, come. Listen to the old, old story of the power of death undone by an infant born of glory, son of God, son of man. This is but the opening song of this concert that goes through and tells the story of God's people from Abraham all the way up to the nativity of Christ. And the last song It's called, Behold the Lamb of God, and goes on to proclaim, This Lamb, this Jesus, the Christ, the Comforter of the nations, as the life and light of men, the one who died and rose again, the one who came to take away our sin. This final song follows others detailing the biblical story. And I can almost almost hear Simeon standing there singing this, behold, the Lamb of God, right here in my arms. And I can almost hear Anna joyfully proclaiming, the redemption of Jerusalem is at hand. So let this be our reminder as we approach Christmas, as we approach this great feast of the Incarnation, that all of our pain, all of our loneliness, all of our sins are being undone by the one who came to bring our only true consolation, our only true comfort for all of our sadness, our only true salvation, which we have longed for with all of creation. Brothers and sisters, we live in the already of Jesus' first coming, and we await the not yet of his second coming. And so wait with great expectation as you gather for Christmas this year. Amen.